Welcome to the Readings Podcast, a fortnightly celebration of books. In today's episode, a conversation with Dr. Richard Denis, Chief Economist at the Australia Institute, Australia's foremost public policy think tank. Richard is renowned for his ability to clearly explain complicated economic ideas and develop new solutions. His latest essay, Big, The Role of the State in the Modern Economy, tells us it is time to jettison the obsession with the unfinished reform agenda of the 1990s. Rather, we must now consider the breadth and depth of the new challenges confronting Australia and to chart a course in which governments take more responsibility for solving the problems that will dominate Australian lives in the years ahead. Richard will be in conversation with Mark Rubo. And here's the host of the event, Readings Programming Manager, Chris Gordon. Hello and welcome. My name is Christine Gordon. I'm the Programming Manager for Readings, which is a very fortunate role for many, many reasons. And one of them is because Mark is my boss, but more about that later. Before we get started, what I want us all to do, all of us here in this community of thinkers and readers, I want us all just to take a little moment out of our day to reflect that wherever we are, wherever we are here in Australia, wherever we're zooming in from, that we're on land that's not ours, we're on land that's not been ceded. And I know when I give an acknowledgement of country how important it is for me to send respect on behalf of all of you, for me to say how glad we are to live in this beautiful country. But I reckon when I've got a group of people like you here, when I've got a group of people that keep asking questions, that keep reading, I think that we can do something greater than that. I think we can make a commitment to read First Nations stories I think we can make a commitment to read poetry written by First Nations people. And I reckon we can all choose to be quiet and listen carefully to the First Nations people so that we can understand the land that we live on so much more. Now, back back to that Mark Rubo, back to one of the many reasons why it's a joy to work at Readings. Mark, as you know, is the Managing Director of Readings, a position that he's held since, ooh, way before me. That's not actually true, Mark, but I like to say that. I do believe I'm actually the same age as Readings. And Mark is known in the community as someone that has endorsed many, many books, who has supported many, many authors. He continues to do the good work of supporting Australian literature, but he does more than that. He does more than ask the sort of questions that we all want the answers to. He has decided that his business, the business that I work for, will also be a model on how to give back to the community. He is, of course, the founding member of the Readings Foundation, an organisation that gives away hundreds and thousands of dollars each year. He also has programs to support staff education and so much more. It is a treat to have someone, a businessman, like Mark Rubo, talking to our guest today. Let's make them all very welcome. Mark, over to you. Well, thank you, Chris, and um, welcome, everyone. We're here to talk about this wonderful little book with Richard Denise. Richard, as probably most of you know, is an economist at the Australia Institute, which is um, one of Australia's premier think tanks. He's also a prolific writer, writing for The Guardian, the Australian Financial Review, uh, the Saturday Paper, the Monthly, and occasionally other journals too. He was in the Sydney Morning Herald the other day and The Age. I 
always enjoy reading your work, Richard. I love it. It's clear, it's understandable, and occasionally and often very inspirational. And um, you're the author of a number of books and co-author. And this new little book is, uh, I found it really stimulating. I hope it sort of prods people to think and people who can do things about it. Uh, so I'm really looking forward to talking to you with about this book and seeing where you're coming from. For years we've been told that what we have to do is balance the budget. That's been the primary thing and, you know, Scotty and Josh, that was what they were working to before COVID struck. They said that was the holy grail. But in this book you say that's not the holy grail. So <laughs> tell us... <laughs> Tell us why. Yeah, look, I mean, the emperor isn't just naked. He's stark, bollocksy naked. I mean, there's nothing in economics ever. I mean, I've been teaching economics for 25 years. There's nothing in an economics textbook says the number one thing a government should do is balance the budget. Now, I'll give you a few reasons why, but let's just put it into context. The last American president to balance the US budget was a guy called Bill Clinton. The last UK Prime Minister to deliver a budget surplus was uh, was Tony Blair. All right, no one else in the world cares. <laughs> like I know it's hard to hear that, but no one cares. It's just not a big deal. So that's step one. Step two, why should they care? The idea that it takes 365 days for the Earth to get around the sun, that's a year. And in an agrarian society where you kind of, you know, grew food for a couple of months in spring and summer and ate it during winter, you didn't want to run out of food in the cold, dark winter. So the idea of balancing the amount of food you produce and the amount of food you ate over a 365-day period might make sense. It's got nothing, nothing to do with, with managing the economy. Imagine you lived on Pluto. Would you balance the budget over a 300-year period? Like what would be the appropriate time frame to, to make sure the amount of revenue and the amount of spending added up? So it doesn't really make any sense. But, but let me just put it to you this way. We've had governments for decades say that to borrow money is to live beyond our means and to be reckless. Well, that's what we tell every 18-year-old going to university to do. We say go to uni and rack up $20,000 a year in hex fees and accumulate a huge debt and graduate with sixty dollars to $80,000, $100,000 in debt. Is that living beyond their means or is that investing in their future? Well, it's both. But if you're borrowing money to do things that will give you benefits in the future, it's a great idea. Anyone that earns $100,000 a year and buys a million-dollar house has a $900,000 deficit. Oh, my God, a deficit. Well. If you actually think that over the life of your house you're going to save more on rent and the value of the house will go up, it's a good thing. So we don't even, you don't believe, I don't believe, no one believes that borrowing money is a bad idea, but borrowing money for bad ideas is a bad idea. <laughs> and, and that's really the point of the book. We need to have a democratic conversation about what's a good idea and what's a bad idea. Because no one in economics and no one else in the world thinks that debt is bad. And then, of course, having heard for 30 years conservatives in particular, but Labor as well, so we have to balance the budget, when Josh Frydenberg dropped a lazy $200 billion deficit, he went, don't worry about it. It's no big deal. Well, you know what? He was right. He was wrong for his whole life, but he's right now. 
Right. So it's still I'm still trying to grapple with this. Um, a household has to pay back its debt. Yeah. So why doesn't a government have to pay back its debt? All right. So a household doesn't have to pay back its debt, by the way. Like if you die owing money, you know, what are they going to do? But most people don't want to live like that. Most people think, well, I'd like to pay off my house and have some money saved up by the time I retire. So when's Australia planning to retire? What's what's the date <laughs> that we're going to pack it in? So, again, I'm not saying that just borrowing money and spending it on crap ideas is a great idea. That's not what the book says at all. But the idea that a 365-day period is somehow important is weird. The, the idea that there should be a particular day in history where we become debt-free and then start to accumulate savings, that's weird. But let's actually flip that on its head. If, if your business makes a profit, that means that you made more money from your customers than you spend on your costs and you get to hang on to that profit. And that's good and that's fine and that's capitalism. But when a government runs a budget surplus, it means the government is collecting more from me in tax and you in tax than it's spending on us in services. So it's, it's like who, who's it making a surplus from? Us. So what's the point? Why, why should this government be kind of stockpiling some money from me so that it can spend it on me in a year or 10 years' time? So, again, the problem is we've taken these narrow accounting concepts that work for a household, like, you know, maybe pay your debt off before you retire, and we've applied it to a nation state, a nation state that can print its own currency that hopefully isn't going to retire anytime soon, and in which the people it's profiting from by collecting a lot of tax are the same people that it has to give its dividends to. Like, we're the owners. We own this. We can't make ourselves rich by saving up our own money and spending it on ourselves later. It's meaningless. So one of the things uh, in the book you talk about is what do we spend our money on? Now, governments do spend a lot of money. We've just signed a huge deal to buy, what, $90 billion worth of nuclear submarines that may never be delivered. Presumably, they're all going, not going to be manufactured here, so they're not going to create any jobs. So what's, what's the good of that? Good question. But, I mean, so let's be clear, you know, Australia is one of the richest countries in the world. We're living at one of the richest points in world history. And only an economist can say this to you, $90 billion isn't a lot of money. Right, it's just not a lot of money. Over the 50 years of the subs project, it's actually rounding error. And again, only an economist will, will tell you this. So each year, the Commonwealth government spends around $500 billion, $500,000 million every year out the door. That's our money. It's the House of Representatives is full of our representatives. It's up to us to make sure that that money is spent on the things that we think are most important. Now, in Australia, we've not been able to have this debate about what areas of spending do you think are most important and what would you like more money spent on and what would you like less money spent on. We've actually been kind of patted on the head and, and told by our betters that we're not allowed to have a debate about the shape of government spending. We've just been told that the size is too big and we have to just shrink public spending. 
So the big kids are having a conversation about shrinking public spending for 30 years and because it has to get smaller, we've never really got explained why, but because we believed it had to be made smaller, if I showed up and said, gee, I think we could spend a lot more money on aged care because, you know, I, I don't want my mum to be malnourished. And someone else says, well, gee, I think we could spend a lot more money on childcare like they do in the Nordic countries because I actually want to encourage uh, parents to get back to work who want to get back to work and I want kids to get access to high-quality childcare when they're young if they want it. So we're not allowed to kind of talk about what we want because for 30 years we've just been told we have to cut spending, we have to cut spending. But, of course, the key point of the book is that literally the richest countries in the world, the countries with the highest productivity growth, the countries with the highest GDP per person, and actually the happiest countries in the world are the big taxing, big spending countries of Norway, Denmark, Sweden and Finland. And, and in Australia we're actually told if we don't cut spending we won't be able to compete with China. If we don't cut wages we won't be able to compete with China. It's like, well, have you ever heard of a Volvo? Have you ever been to Ikea? Other countries manage to make things and sell things even though they have high wages and high taxes. Going back to what you said before, that governments, there's nothing stopping governments to, by spending lots of money. So why do we have to have taxes then? There's no magic pudding. That's what economics is about. Let's picture a pie that says here's how much stuff we can make in Australia. Right, if we all kind of worked hard all day long, you know, we can make a nice big pie's worth of stuff. And the amount of people in the country determine how much stuff we can make, how productive each person is determines how much we make, how many factories we've got, how much infrastructure we've got. These are all the factors of production and they determine how much stuff we can make. Now, if I come along and say I want to double the size of the health sector and double the size of the education sector and double the size of the defence sector and I don't want to shrink anything, then that's not going to work. All right, the, while the budget doesn't have to balance every year, if the government tries to double its production and we don't try and reduce consumption of anything else, well, we're going to run out of stuff and that'll, that'll show up as inflation, that'll show up as other problems. So really what tax does is make room in the economy for the government to be bigger. So the stage three tax cuts are coming in, people earning over $180,000 a year are about to get a $9,000 a year tax cut, okay? So according to this government, the, the fairest thing we can do with the tax system right now is give a $9,000 tax cut to people earning over 180 grand. What does that really mean? It means they've got $9,000 more to spend on coffee or lunch or dinner or a new car or whatever it is they want to buy. By giving them a tax cut, we're saying you can hang on to more resources, you go buy more of the things that you value, but the consequence in the long run is that the public sector will inherently be smaller. So the big spending countries like Norway and Denmark and Sweden are the big taxing countries. That's not a coincidence, but they don't have to balance the budget every 12 months. That's, that's meaningless. How do we change this? Conversation. I mean, you reference in quite glowing terms uh, the efforts of the Menzies government. Yeah, um, big government. <laughs> big government, uh, establishing universities, the Snowy Hydro. How has the conversation changed? 
so, yeah, so Menzies gave us this enormous public sector investment in the Snowy Hydro scheme, tax concessions, public spending and regulation to really massively drive home ownership, big visionary stuff. Like, don't get me wrong, you know, the Menzies government was tired by the time they ended, but Menzies did not did not avoid trying to uh, reshape Australia. Inland railway lines, big road projects, lots and lots and lots of government spending, lots of budget deficits, enormous. I think I think Menzies delivered one budget surplus. So Menzies was a big spending, nation-building interventionist. Let's be crystal clear about that. Whitlam comes along and says, how about free universities? How about sewers out through suburbia? Uh, how about all sorts of stuff that people remember? Fraser comes along, had an entirely different agenda, but he gave us the Human Rights Commission, he gave us uh, freedom of information laws, he, he, he made government more accountable and more transparent. Hawke comes along, gives us Medicare, intervenes in Tasmania and stops Franklin Dam being built. All right, our former prime ministers use the enormous power of the state to invest, to build, to grow, to change. What does Scott Morrison do? Car parks in suburbia. I mean, how on earth did we get to the point where the allegedly small L-liberal, allegedly free marketeer, allegedly small government conservatives woke up one day and went, you know, I know what an important role for the federal (laughs) government is, Scott. What's that, Josh? I think we should be building car parks in suburbia. Well, why do you say that, Josh? Well, I don't think the private sector knows how to build a car park. I don't think they know where to build a car park. We need the Commonwealth of Australia to get into the car parking business. Oh, that's an interesting idea, Josh. What else should we be building? Well, I hear there's a toilet block needs building at the rowing thing down there. Where's down there, Josh? Oh, it's in a marginal electorate. Oh, isn't that interesting? Right. So once upon a time, we took seriously the role of government. Once upon a time, we took seriously the role of the state in building the country that surrounds us. And we can haggle about what they should or shouldn't have done, as we should, but we don't doubt that they did it. You know, what are these guys doing? So how do you um, change the conversation? Is I mean, Scott and Josh would say, well, look, really what the government has to get out of our lives and let the private sector, it knows best. And, well, but this is the point, you know, that they say this stuff, but they don't believe it. You and I, $10 billion a year of our funds are spent subsidising fossil fuels. That's not free market. That's not small government. $10 billion a year to subsidise the problem we're allegedly trying to solve. We spend billions on subsidising private schools. We spend billions subsidising private hospitals. These people intervene all the time, comma, when they want to. So when it comes to the banks, oh, no, let's not, let's not intervene in the banks. Let's, let's deregulate them. When it comes to the unions, let's regulate the bejesus out of them. When it comes to charities, let's regulate them, tie them up in red tape. Oh, some independents want to run for parliament. What can we do about that, Josh? I got an idea. How about we introduce some red tape to tie our enemies up? Right. So we unfortunately, we, the royal we, take seriously this idea that in Australia, the Liberal Party, a small government opposed to regulation, opposed to subsidies. There's no evidence to support that. Absolutely none. 
They shovel enormous amounts of our money onto people they like and they punish with regulation people they don't like. They wield regulation as a weapon and they shovel our money as subsidies onto their friends. You know, we, we have this sort of farcical conversation as if they're libertarian. <laughs> you know, this is it's madness. So we had at the last election, uh, Bill Shorten went to the public with a number of major reforms trying to address some of these issues and promising some big spending, but the public didn't buy it. Why, why was that? Oh, well, I, I, I confessed before the show that I wrote a 5,000-word essay for the monthly on why Labor won the last election and then spent the worst three days of my life rewriting an essay that started with, this is not the first draft of this piece. So, you know, you're asking the wrong person to some extent. But democracy is an imperfect thing. I supported most of that tax agenda that Labor took to the election. A lot of it was based on research work done by the Australia Institute on the tax concessions, the loopholes that needed closing, etc. But the fact is Scott Morrison scraped in, scraped in to what's now a minority government. Remember when Julia Gillard ran a minority government, it was chaos, chaos, chaos. But we don't even talk about the fact that this mob are in a minority government. So they just won. What was spectacular about it was not the landslide or the swing, but the fact that they won. But I do think that the story that we've been told about why, well, winners write history, we all know that. The story we've been told about why Labor lost doesn't, doesn't actually bear much scrutiny. So we all know that it was because of franking credits and, and, uh, and negative gearing and capital gains tax. We all know that. But Labor went to the last election promising to close loopholes like tax refunds for franking credits. Uh, They're going to make cancer treatment free. All cancer treatment was going to be free uh, and free childcare for people earning up to 60,000 bucks. So close the tax loophole that really only the top 5% of income earners rely heavily on, free childcare and free cancer treatment. And the two poorest electorates in Australia, Bass and Braddon in northern Tasmania, swung away from Labor. Two, if Labor had hold on to those, the the Liberals would not have had a majority. Does anyone really think that Bass and Braddon, the voters were sitting there thinking, yeah, gee, those franking credits that I've never heard of, and statistically we know no one there is using them, oh, those franking credits, you know, that's that's why I'm not going to vote for Bill Shorten. So it's complicated, but there's no doubt that the coalition, you know, got more people to vote for it, fair enough, but the idea that it was because of franking credit policy, well, if you can't explain the swing in Bass and Braddon, uh, which no one can, uh, I don't think that it was franking credits. That, that The fear campaign might have worked, but mm. the idea that people hated the policy agenda, uh, I don't think so. And the result of that, of course, is that um, leadership is, is trying to keep a very low profile and have no radical policies to to reform our economy and uh, to create a more equitable society. Yeah, look, it's tricky. I mean, I like spicy food. And so if I go out for dinner and the food's spicy, I think that's nice. But if the food's too spicy and the customers don't come and the restaurant goes broke, I don't get to eat the nice spicy food. So I guess if you think of democracy as this very imperfect mechanism for kind of saying who are we going to put in the big chair, uh, Labor took a pretty progressive, very progressive 
tax and spend agenda to the last election and they lost. So I guess they had two choices, try the same thing again or try something different. Now, again, I like my spice and I like my tax system progressive. So personally, you know, there's plenty of room on my political radar for some more ambitious tax reform. But, you know, if I walked into Anthony Albanese's office today and said, I've got some great advice for you, Anthony, you're 10 points clear in the poll. You've kept it simple. You're well in front. Let's spice things up around here. Why don't you put on the menu what you dished up three years ago? Uh, I can imagine how well received that would be. So I accept that democracy is a pretty imperfect mechanism, but I think, and I write about this in the book, I really think we have to kind of have pay more attention to how democracy works. And I think we shouldn't think everyone's a saint or everyone's a sinner or someone's always a saint and everyone's always a sinner. It's our job in democracy to make hard incremental choices. That's what Labor's done. They're in front of the polls. You know, if they win, we'll, we'll have a more progressive agenda than if they lose. Is it progressive enough for my taste? No, but that's democracy. And you're right in the book, you alluded there about the rise of populism and, um, you know, we have um, Clive Palmer and Craig Kelly sort of shitting in the woods at the moment. How, yeah, how do we change the narrative? And as you say, you know, Menzies was a nation builder and whatever you think of his politics, I mean, he wanted a bigger and better Australia. You don't know what Clive Palmer and Craig Kelly want. I suppose they want more fossil fuels and um, no regulations and no taxes. <laughs> so my starting point is, you know, I'm an economist, not a lawyer, but my starting point is always the Constitution. You know, we've got a constitution that says this is the powers of the federal government, these are the rules for electing a parliament, here's what a parliament can and can't do, here are the kind of laws the parliament can choose to make or not. And our parliaments for decades have chosen not to do donation reform. Our parliaments for decades have chosen not to have spending caps. Our parliaments for decades have chosen not to have a federal corruption watchdog. Our parliaments for decades have chosen not to do civics education well and explain preferential voting to people. Well, we're reaping what we sow. And unfortunately, Clive Palmer's not breaking the law. You know, is he rich? Yes. Is he spending a lot of money and promoting himself? Yes. Is that illegal? No. Why isn't it illegal? Because we haven't made it illegal, <laughs> the royal we. It is up to us as individuals, as organisations, as an active body politic to raise people's expectations of democracy, to raise people's expectations of politics, to put institutions in place and to build a culture where this sort of stuff shouldn't happen. But we have to be really careful. Don't get me wrong, I don't think that Clive Palmer played a constructive, positive role in our democracy at the last election, and I don't think his ads are, are doing much to help inform voting this time. But so unconcerned by that, what happened at the last election, was Scott Morrison, that he didn't do anything to stop it happening again. So I actually think Scott Morrison, with all of that pork barrelling and all of that pride, in, yeah, of course I spend bucket loads of money on people I like and, and if, by refusing to have a federal corruption commission and refusing to deal with donation reform. I think he's actually given us a gift. How can we tell ourselves it doesn't matter who you elect? 
right? How can we say they're all the same? When, when Scott Morrison says, when I shovel billions of dollars onto my mates, that's not corrupt, that's democracy. <laughs> well, you know what? He's right. So how do we then tell ourselves it doesn't matter who we vote for? So, yeah, I hate to say it, but we have to own our own shit here. You know, this, this didn't just happen. It didn't just sneak up on us, right? It, it, you could have seen it coming and people like myself, and I'm not alone, have been waving our arms around literally for decades saying, how about we have a corruption commission? How about we do donation reform? And it hasn't happened, and this is what you get. So if you don't like what you see, don't tell yourself it doesn't matter who you vote for. That's what they want you to think because then we disempower ourselves. You know, democracy thrives on high expectations and, and, mm. and we've had our expectations lowered of their conduct. We've had our expectations of how well they choose how to spend our money so much that we're not sitting around going, how come Germany can give free higher education, not just to all of its citizens, but to temporary residents and, and refugees? If Germany can do that, how come we can't? Right. No one's sitting around asking big, interesting questions about our democracy, but we are sitting around saying, oh, they're all the same, they're all crap, you can't fix it. Twitter, let's blame Twitter. Democracy can't work because of Twitter. Well, here's a tip. Sweden's got Twitter. Norway's got Twitter. New Zealand's got Twitter. But they don't have our bereft political culture. In your book, you refer often to the Nordic countries. What in particular have they done that you really admire and that you'd like to transport? You know, I've spent a fair bit of time in the Nordic countries. I think they're interesting. I don't want to live there. I don't want to copy them. I don't want to be Norway down south. The reason I focus so much on the Nordic countries is because usually when I talk about things and say, you know, the budget deficit doesn't matter that much, you know, high taxes aren't the end of the world, you know, it's okay for governments to regulate business. People think it's crazy utopian nonsense, you know. Where's your ride here on a unicorn, did you, Richard? So the reason I talk about Norway so much is because it exists. <laughs> it is real. It is a place. It's not an idea. It's not an ideology. It's one of the richest, happiest countries in the world. So I, I talk about the Nordic model not because I just want to do that. And I'll give you some examples of things I'd like to do but because they do it and it works and it's not theoretical, it's not la-la land. And keep in mind, these people have got Russia right next door, <laughs> right? They, they, are, they are not aligned to the US. They're not in the Five Eyes intelligence sharing service. They have independent foreign policy. They have Russia right on their door and they still live the life they want to live. Now, one of the things that shocked me researching the book was to learn that Taiwan, with a population about the same size as Australia, 200 miles from mainland China, China makes an explicit territorial claim to Taiwan, we spend more on defence than Taiwan. And we're more afraid of China invading us than Taiwan. And I mean that. We've surveyed it. Australians are more worried about China invading us than Taiwanese are. So despite being in an alliance with the US, outspending all of our neighbours combined on defence, outspending the country closest to China, which China says that they have territorial claims over, despite our submarines, our joint strike fighters, our Abrams tanks, all of that, we're still scared and insecure. 
And, you know, the most interesting thing about the Nordics is they're not scared and they're not insecure. They actually think that they can shape their own country. They can have their own independent foreign policy. So the thing that I admire most about them is that they actually still see themselves as having agency. They don't moan about globalisation and, you know, whatever. They're just like, well, what are the rules? How do we shape them? What do we do? How do we be who we want to be in a changing world? While we just sit around getting told cut spending, cut taxes, cut wages, privatise things, compete with China, be afraid. Well, guess what? No one's happy. It's not working. And the, the, the Nordics are the happiest people in the world. You say we need tax reform. What reforms would, this is a big question, what reforms would you say are the easy pickings? That ah, no, that's a Dorothy Dixer. Thank you. <laughs> Medium pace outside off stump. Well, you know, we hear a lot about we need to, you know, broaden the base of the GST. All right, stick it on private school fees and private hospitals. You know, <laughs> we, we, talk, we talk all the time about needing to put the GST on bananas and apples as if somehow this is going to transform the economy. Dear God. So, yeah, when it comes to the GST, if you want to shut people up about that, say, do you think we should put it on private schools? And I guarantee all the powerful people will skulk away. But what do we really need to do? Well, every economist in the world, every trained economist that doesn't work for the fossil fuel industry at least, would agree that a carbon tax is a good idea. It will increase the efficiency of the economy. So let's scrap $10 billion a year in subsidies for fossil fuels. There's $10 billion to play with. Let's put a tax on carbon pollution. It doesn't even have to be that high. Stick in a low one, let it rise steadily over time. Don't get caught up on the price, just get the principle in. The Ken Henry Review, which everyone, all the tax reform people, I call them rhinos, reformers in name only. They never want to pick a hard fight. You know, the Ken Henry Tax Review said we should collect a lot more tax from our natural resources. Well, Australia is now the biggest exporter of liquefied natural gas in the world. We overtook Qatar a few years ago, but Qatar collects 20 times more tax than we do on gas. We export more gas than Qatar. They collect 20 times more tax than us. So we need to get rid of fossil fuel subsidies. We need a carbon tax. We need a resource rent tax, as we've already designed and tried to do. And at some point, we have to look at wealth taxation and tax-free capital gains, unlimited tax-free capital gains. And, and again, all of these things happen around the world. The pinko lefty communists in the United States of America have got death duties. The idea that the sky will fall if some tax is paid when an estate moves from one hand to another is crazy. And, you know, pick a number, 10 million bucks. If it's less than that, you're exempt. If it's more than that, you'll pay. We'll collect a fortune. When Gina Reinhart dies, yes. there's all of, no, but seriously, like there's a $20 billion fortune, $20,000 million. If some of that came back to us rather than all of that went to her kids, tell me what the problem would be. Would her kids be poor? Would they be disincentivized? In no other country. Or in few other countries, would a gift that be be tax free? Oh, interesting. <laughs> um, See, it's easy. <laughs> <laughs> Very easy. It seems quite um, palatable, really, too. Well, it is. But this is the would you leave the nine thousand tax break for the wealthy? <laughs> well, exactly. But you know, it's not an accident that people aren't asking each other. Do we think people earning over two hundred grand a year need a 
$9,000 a year tax cut or should we spend more money on healthcare workers and aged care workers? Because that's an interesting, important economic and democratic question. The kind of question that people who are serious about the shape of the economy and the conduct of civil society and, and who we are as a country, that seems like a pretty A-grade question that we should ask ourselves and ask our representatives. How did you come up with $9,000 a year? What was the rationale for that? And, and what if instead of giving $9,000 a year to those with the most, what if we gave $1,000 a year to those with the least? Would that be better, worse? Can we talk about it, please? Not in Australia. Cut taxes, cut taxes, cut spending. There's no room in our public debate, in our small little debate about our small government. We're just not allowed to ask interesting questions. Or if we do, you know, you've dealt yourself out of the mainstream. I'm a, I'm a left-wing economist for thinking carbon taxes are a good idea. There's not a Nobel Prize winner who disagrees with me. I was wondering, too, um, the support the governments have given during COVID has been quite radical in the, in the sense because we'll take Josh, for example, you know, dropping, what, $200 billion on, on supporting people and businesses got taken from what you've said in your book, this sort of acceptance more of this, what they call the modern monetary theory. Is that sort of where you're coming from in that? Oh, yes and no. I mean, I'm very familiar with modern monetary theory. You know, I used to work with some of the major proponents of it back when I was an academic. But what modern monetary theory really says is a, a nation state that issues its own sovereign currency can't go broke, right? And, and no one disagrees with that. I certainly don't. So I, I, if, if that's what modern monetary theory is, yep, sign me up. But, you know, I think Keynes said something similar. I think Kaletsky said something similar. But, you know, I don't, I don't care what acronyms we use. But once we accept, look, governments don't need to balance the budget every year and almost no other country in the world even bothers to try, for me, what theory sits underneath that is almost irrelevant. Let's just own the fact of it. Menzies delivered budget deficits and the sky didn't fall. You know, George Bush never even tried to deliver a budget surplus and the sky didn't fall. So, you know, we don't all have to be macroeconomic experts to understand that it's, it's the role of the state to accumulate resources in the form of tax to divert our consumption spending away from stuff and focus it on the things that we collectively want. Now, in some countries, plenty of African countries, plenty of Southeast Asian countries, they collect very small amounts of tax and they spend very little on, on public schools and public hospitals and public transport. Right, that's fine. They've still got economies. They're still there. They're still human. It's fine. And, of course, in Northern Europe, you've got the other extreme. They, they accumulate a lot of resources through the tax. They spend a lot of resources on health and education and transport. And they just happen, coincidentally, to deliver the highest productivity, richest, happiest people in the world. And here is us in little old Australia, 12th biggest economy in the world, right? Tiny population, enormous wealth, a whole continent to play with no strategic rivals, the countries we're afraid of would have to invade a hell of a lot of people before they get anywhere near us. And here we are sitting down here shitting ourselves and feeling poor. You know, <laughs> how did that happen? And it didn't happen by accident because if we feel scared and if we feel broke 
And if we feel divided, then we won't all demand that Gina pays some more tax and the Bunsen burners work at my kid's school. Right, I live in Canberra, right, richest city in Australia, and my kid goes to a high school where they three years they haven't fixed the Bunsen burners. Right, that's Australia. Let's own it. Right, we had a royal commission that said there's people dying of malnutrition in our aged care homes. Dying of malnutrition in our aged care homes. Oh, quick, Josh, what do you think? Will we fix that, or will we give nine thousand dollar tax cuts? Well, I think we better give the tax cuts, Scotty. Right, let's own that. That's a democratic choice. That's a priority. Someone made it on our behalf. And if we tell ourselves they're all the same, we're saying it's fine. Well, it's not fine from my point of view. It's appalling, but it's a choice. But if they make that choice and people vote for them again, it must be all right. We were talking before we started. You revealed that you're a bit of a betting man. (laughs) You don't bet on the dogs. You don't bet on the horses. You bet on elections. Are you optimistic? I am. Uh, I am. Uh, Keep in mind I was optimistic before the last election. But, no, look, I am for lots of reasons, including, you know, polls aren't perfect, but long period of time these polls have got worse for the coalition, not better. If you think in November or December last year there was a pool of undecided voters, literally undecided, either didn't know or didn't care yet, it's hard to believe that through December and January a whole bunch of them went, yeah, Scott's got it going on, doesn't he? I wasn't sure who I was going to vote for, but I think I'll go that way. Maybe some did. I don't know. But my gut says no. The polls say no. We don't know how much money Clive Palmer's going to spend. We don't know how outrageous the budget will be when it comes to taking our money and spending it on their priority seats and their priority demographics. Once upon a time on election night, prime ministers would always say, thank you, I'm honoured, I'm here for all of us. You know, I, I'm, not, I'm not here for the people who voted for me, I'm here for us, I promise. Give me a chance, let's do this. Now we have prime ministers and Premier Gladys Berejiklian in New South Wales said the same thing. Of course I just funnel the money into the marginal seats and I reward the people who voted for me. Don't you know how politics works? <laughs> So anyway, there's a whole bunch of unknowns. I'm I'm an eternal optimist. You know, I'm I'm quite cynical and some would say brutal at times, but uh, got to be an optimist. But hey, it's a democracy, and, and and if these people get re-elected, I'll go along with it. I'm not threatening to move to New Zealand. I'll just know that people in my country think that tax cuts for high income earners is more important than getting rid of malnutrition in aged care or giving nurses a pay rise. These are our choices. Richard, thank you so much for tonight and thank you so much for writing this little book. If you haven't read it out there, it doesn't take too long and it'll make you think and make you think about what we can do to change our society for the better. So thank you so much for your contribution. It's been a great pleasure having you tonight and I wish you all the very best. Thanks, thanks so Mark, and thanks thanks for all you do to promote books and ideas and, and authors and um Yeah, it's a thin volume about a big topic. Someone told me it's like a TARDIS. You know, there's more on the inside than you expect, but it's a quick read. (laughs) You can stream previous episodes of The Readings Podcast on our website. We will also find all kinds of bookish recommendations and plenty of great books, music, film and TV. You can also sign up to e-news or to receive our free monthly print newsletter, Readings Monthly. Production for this podcast was by me, Nico Callaghan. <laughs>
The show's music is by Tom Hoskins. All of our podcasts are recorded and produced on the lands of the Kulin Nation. We respectfully acknowledge the traditional owners of this land and that sovereignty was never ceded. <laughs>